Hi all. Welcome to another episode of the Leading Safely podcast. Today, I have a great special guest episode for you with another person whose thinking and values when it comes to health and safety align with mine. My dream has always been a workplace where there isn't a HSE function. I would love to see a workplace where there isn't a team of health and safety doers, there isn't advisors getting around with clipboards, completing inspections or doing safe act observations. Instead, health and safety is integrated into every role within the business, from reporting through to assurance activities and everything in between. So rather than these huge departments or teams of health and safety professionals, there are just a few HSE specialists that coach the leadership team on various aspects and are there to guide only. When you listen to my special guest speak, he too doesn't focus on the term health and safety professional and is more about the practice and work that is required to be completed. That guest on today's episode is my new friend, Rob Fisher. For those of you who don't know Rob, he is currently the president and director of operations for Fisher Improvement Technologies, a Native American Cherokee-owned business that was recently awarded a top 100 Native American-owned business in the US and a top 50 emerging business in North Carolina by diversitybusiness.com. Rob has extensive experience in performing incident analysis, designing performance improvement systems, designing and improving corrective action programs, designing and running procedure programs, and educating staff from the senior leaders to the field. He is a sought after mentor and trainer and is routinely invited to speak at international, national and regional conferences on safety, procedures, performance improvement, human and organisational performance and incident analysis. Fisher Improvement Technologies has most recently been recognised internationally as instrumental in reducing fatalities and serious life-altering injuries in high-hazard industries using human and organisational performance and procedural concepts. So here is my chat with Rob. Hi Rob, thanks for taking some time out of your day to come and meet with me and welcome to Australia again. It's good to be here again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So as you know, I ask all my special guests three uh, health and safety related questions. Uh, The first one is, what do you think makes an effective health and safety leader? Well, I think that it's interesting that we label people health and safety leaders Mm -hmm. as opposed to leaders that have really excelled in all of the different attributes of operational excellence, including health and safety. Mm-hmm. So I think a good health and safety leader isn't necessarily labeled a health and safety leader. Yep. That that piece of what they do, and, and, and I think when we start labeling things, EHS and all these other uh, safety mm-hmm. professional, we're actually creating the very silos that many organizations want to get rid of. So to be an effective health and safety and well-being and environmental leader, you have to really understand the people and talk to them in an engaging way instead of an observing way. Mm -hmm. So a lot of health and safety leaders say, here's what we have to go out and observe, here's how we have to hold accountability. What they ought to be doing is engaging with them to tell them what's going on, explain to them how the work is done, describing 
the challenges that, that, that they have and showing them areas of vulnerability. And then collecting all that and to be really good at it, you have to be able to convey that to the resource holders in a way that they will free the resources up to do the right thing with it. Mm -hmm. So they're that conduit between the work that is being done and the people that are doing that work and the people that hold the purse strings and the values, uh, requirements, and the procedures under which all of that is governed. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of health and safety leaders think their job is to manage down. Mm -hmm. And just by putting manage in there, they're yep. missing the point. Yep. But the challenge in the U.S. is, and I don't know whether it's like this in Australia and New Zealand, but the challenge in the U.S. is that's what they're taught in university. Yeah. And so I actually sit on the board for the um, Safety Science Advisory Board for Indiana University, Pennsylvania in the U.S. I got a seat on that board to try to change yep. the way academics looks at what a good health and safety professional would look like mm -hmm. when they come out and go to work so we don't have to undo those things. So I think I probably went astray, but a good health and safety leader is a good leader yeah. that happens to be tied to health and safety in the, at the moment. Yeah. Uh, there's one other attribute that I see a lot of out there that challenges me, and that is the career path to executive or plant manager or operational manager mm -hmm. is rarely through safety and health. <laughs> That's an interesting observation. Mm -hmm. so yeah. You you talk to a lot of safety and health people that have been in the in the business, safety and health business, yep. 20, 30, 40 years. They have no overt career path to operations executive. Uh, maintenance manager. So every now and then one of those folks will slide over into safety and their big fears are going to get stuck there. Yeah. We have to find a way that safety and health and well-being are honored enough in the organization so that they're part and parcel of that path to being a well-rounded executive. And that's an organizational thing, not the safety professional thing. And I think, I think to tie back to the direct question, if that health and safety professional leads, they can make themselves part of that path. If they just manage safety down, they're not yeah. part of that path. So, hmm, that's an interesting observation. I can't think of any executive that I've, I've ever interacted with that has come from the health and safety field. I'll go you a step further. Yeah. Once they get to the executive level, they start sliding people over into the, oh, yes, into, they the, do. into the vice president of safety. Yes. Like, I've never done that. I've been in charge of yes, HR. Yes, they do. I'm, I'm oh, that's the words out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. 100% it's normally HR. That was what I was about to say. <laughs> yep, so, most definitely. Well, this is a, a career move for me. Yes. Wouldn't that be a nice career move that we made way down here instead of way up there? Yeah, Because every three or four years you're having to either do or undo or redo. Yeah whatever that executive brings to the table that doesn't have anything to do with knowing how to keep people self, uh, how to keep people safe and healthy. Yeah, no, I agree. 
Well, that almost brings us to the second question, which is what would you do if you came across someone that was a little bit stuck in their ways when it came to health and safety and how would you get them to move along that journey a little bit? Yeah, so we have a unique, I'll call it a privilege of every time we go in and we talk to a group of people like that, number one, every group has them. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to target them because you already know they're there. <laughs> And, and I say this a lot, Sydney and I were sitting around, you know, having a beer a few years ago and he kind of looked at me and said, you know, we're paradigm shifters. If you want to shift somebody's paradigm, you got to give them a paradigm more powerful than when you're asking them to leave. Mm -hmm. and I, now I know that's a fairly memorable quote, but if you give those hardliners a paradigm more powerful than the one you're asking them to leave, not only do they skip that paradigm, they become champions of the new one. We've done that for 30 years. We'll, we'll be in a, uh, it, let's say a, an organization is a, has, a, has a union, they'll have unions down here. Yep. Okay, or bargaining mm -hmm. unit, mm -hmm. union organization. We tell the senior leaders, when we have the senior leader meeting, bring the union leadership in with you. And they kind of head yeah. to and say, look, well, I'm not gonna talk to you unless we're all in the same room. Cause this can't be something you're doing to them. Yeah. It has to be something that we are doing. So those hardliners, those people that don't want to move, mm -hmm. this is our, our experience at FIT. That doesn't happen very often. In fact, okay. they, they, they are the ones that volunteer to become advocates. Right. Because they're, they're things shit. Now, do you still have a few smattered around them? They're, they're not part of the collective. So yeah. they, they get outnumbered by their own pretty quickly mm -hmm. and we don't have to worry about that. Okay. So there's, if you give somebody this information the right way, there is no hardliner the other direction. They can be cantankerous. They can just not want to change because they don't want to change. Yeah. But that becomes very rare. So I would say at every deployment that we've done, mm -hmm. and now we're on the order of 350 of them, yep. um, I can't name on one hand the number of times that a cantankerous You've had a hardliner. <laughs> had a hardliner that ultimately didn't move yep. and impacted the yeah. deployment. And, and those were probably pretty early on yep. when they couldn't call their counterpart at some place that yep. we've already deployed. I mean, what the hell is this? <laughs> oh, I mean, what the heck is this? Yep. And, and get that information, not just from us, yep. but from somebody else. So if you, if you don't have the technology the phraseology and the talent mm -hmm. to deal with those folks, then it's gonna be a hard row because those folks usually have influence. Yeah. And we love that because they have influence and when they flip, everybody goes with them. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, you need, you just need 51%. How many times have we heard that? 51%. Yep. Ours is on the order of 80, 85, 95%. So now the island yep. isn't, we're trying, just trying to keep push over that limit. The island is, you got 12 people out here that are just- Not moving. Yeah. And, and they take care the organization and usually the workforce takes care of yep. that. Uh, it's a little bit different when it's a manager. Ah, uh, so okay. There's, there's, dynamic there's a different, different dynamic. Yeah. And on the manager side, I, I still remember a plant manager that walked out 
you're, I'm not doing any of this crap, and walked out of the meeting. And the rest of the leadership said, look, we're in. I mean, let's give it a shot. The person already said, you know, if, if it works, you take the credit. If it don't work, it's because you didn't do what we told you. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's what we tell people on the way in. Yeah. And, and uh, so the plant manager wasn't on board, but he let everybody do what they needed to do. Yeah. And then about six or seven, I noticed that we kept getting called into organizations. I never knew he was the president of the corporation we were getting called into. Oh, that's <laughs> good, isn't For it? five years, because <laughs> he watched it work. So yep. I, I think that you, you, have, you can't just say push the I believe button. Yeah. Trust is developed through showing people the hows that mattered at them giving them something that they can use at home and then they'll bring it to work mm -hmm. and and you can't unring that bell yeah so a lot of organizations they do hop to the people instead of with and for yeah and that you know you sometimes only get one shot so probably yeah. an over answer to that one. <laughs> no that's okay um, and then the final question is obviously, if you were given an endless amount of resources, money, time, et cetera, uh, and you had to solve a workplace health and safety problem, you could create an invention. What would your invention be to solve a workplace health and safety problem or issue and why? An invention? Yes. We've, we've had some very I, interesting ones. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, I, I'm probably gonna be way out there on this one. Okay. I don't think you, you can solve human problems with physical things mm -hmm. like an invention. Okay. Um, I think that we need to educate early and often. I, I don't know why we're not telling kids in school why we ask them to hold the handrail. Why we do or why we yeah, don't? Why we do. You're not, okay. Right, you start start telling kids, look, this is gonna reduce the probability that you get hurt in kid language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's why we hold the handrail. And the teachers hold the handrail, and all the kids hold the handrail. We go up and down the yep. stairs. When they get out into the workplace, holding the handrail is a natural thing. Yeah, I'm not saying to hold the handrail saves everything, but I, my investment would be in the education and the creation of groups of people from elementary education through university that are already human factored. They know how humans succeed, they know yep. how they fail. They're not human factors expert. They're not PhDs in human factors. Yeah. Or, or we don't, yeah that's all great stuff. Mm -hmm. But the reality of sy systems thinking, mm -hmm. we need to invest in education and, and not, for me, yep. not, um, invention or creation of some kind of mechanical device. We've done everything that we can at FIT to make, to put together electronic training and, and uh, electronic education. You've probably seen raw observations and, mm -hmm. and give that to free for free. So that one person does the, um, out, outlays the money, yeah. but a million people can benefit from it. And I think that that's the way that ought to be approached. It's really the way we approach it when we go into into an organization. Look, don't the organizations always think they're going to have to spend more money to do this mm -hmm. than they have yeah. or want to? Yeah. 
when it's not true. Everything looks like a lot of money when it's right there on the, on the paper. But we've seen, I think I was sharing this with you yesterday, our average ROI for deploying human organizational performance, advanced error reduction, human performance, human fat, whatever you want to call it this week, mm -hmm. is between 30 and 40 to one. Yeah, wow. Average. <laughs> So that puts it into perspective for people, it, doesn't it? It does. When they so say, you know, safety saying, costs money. <laughs> yeah, and, and so the whole infinite amount of money question to us yeah. is we always have a short supply of money. What is the right thing to do with a limited supply of money? Yeah. And what's going to give you that and ROI, really? You, yeah. That's it, isn't it? So I, I, I probably threw a little curve into your question. <laughs> no, that's okay. For me, it would be the investment would be in. Yeah, community, not the, especially if I've got infinite investment. And, and yep. really, the reality is, as we're deploying some of our personality diversity stuff in schools, mm -hmm. schools, bullying virtually disappears. Yeah. So when we do e-colors in a school, or in a school system, mm -hmm. number of office visits goes way down. Number of parents attending conferences goes up bullying disappears. Mm -hmm. That's an early education that stays with people for the rest of their lives. So I don't think about, I, I mean, it'd be great if somebody could invest in all the things at a location, yep. but it only helps that location. And then the location right next to it, owned by the same company that siloed. So yeah, 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 nah, yeah. We won't, we're not doing that. Yeah. So yeah, that's to me, if, if I've got to figure out how to spend a lot of money, I'm going to spend it on the community, not on the things. Not on the things, yeah. Hmm. That's a really philanthropic approach to things, isn't it? I never. It's like take. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. I never thought of it as being philanthropic because yeah. it's just the pattern of our our company mission is improving companies' lives. That's it. Yeah. So everything that we do has to meet that standard. We don't say improving companies and lives, but only if it makes us this much money. Yeah. Right. So when the pandemic hit, <clears throat> we know, I don't know what the numbers are in, in New Zealand and Australia. Mm -hmm. In the US and Canada, probably 80% of fatalities in, in the workplace happen in companies under 100 people. Oh, wow. There's not a hot professional out there that they can afford. Yeah. And we said, look, we can fold the company because of the pandemic, or we can stop doing everything and create something that will help 15 million companies instead of 1,500. Okay. And that's where Fit Online came from. Yeah. Was a two to, two to five minute video yep. that somebody can then go to over and over. Yeah. They can give an executive something on the essential leadership cycle and say, this is from an outside expert. It's what I've been telling you. Mm -hmm. Listen to the outside expert on this. You know the, the essential leadership cycle podcast that I do is yep. it interviews leaders from around the world. So mm. not just, it's not just me trying to sell somebody the essential leadership cycle. It's how is this used? Yep, where you are where, and where you are. Yeah. Okay. And if you give leaders tools and they use them, when you give workers tools, they'll use them. Yeah. But if you don't, they won't. Definitely. Now I also um, 
read Understanding Mental Models, FYI, which is your latest book, I believe, um, in the scheme of things. And I had a couple of questions that I wanted to okay. ask. Um, and I have like some quotable quotes, as I oh, call well. them. <laughs> but they're good. They're good. Um, but my, good quotable They quotes. are good quotable quotes. My first question is around, obviously, I was surprised that you were part of the movement and the coining of the words workers intended versus workers done. Um, and I, just, I wanted to see if you would perhaps share with our listeners that conversation that you ended up having with Todd around yeah. yeah that meeting in the cafeteria and how that came about so there was there was before we talked about that there was some work Eric Holnagel and some other folks were doing we're talking about work is imagined versus work is done mm -hmm. but our challenge was we were you've probably heard the term um, uh, normalization of deviance mm -hmm. <laughs> in the drift model right and so we started jokingly talking about how the old drift model where you drift away and drift towards failure, minimize um, margin to, to risk um, over time really isn't, that organizational drift model isn't really the way it happens. We, workers adapt on the task by task, step by step level. So we kind of drew that out as um, when they're adapting, it's work is done. When they're, when they're on the line, it's work is imagined. Equally, work is done. So then we said, well, hold on. Are we debriefing adaptability? Are we debriefing the gaps, mm -hmm. either before or after? So then, interestingly enough, we actually drew lines across the adaptability curve and said, well, Deming would say we have an upper control limit and a lower control limit. Mm -hmm. Let's get the workers to tell us what that band looks like, and then we'll write our processes within that band. And that was called real drift. Ah. So uh, we, we had gotten together, we were at a, at a conference in uh, Stavanger, Norway. Yep. And we were sitting in the cafeteria, so we start drawing out <laughs> on, a, on, the, on the big tablecloth. And we, he's drawing his stuff out, and we were talking about how you were managing the slice on Heinrich's pyramid, because the yep. pyramid wasn't there, but teaching people how to manage the slice and all, all these. And we just kind of came up with this, with this um, philosophy that better explained what we were trying to talk about with real drift. Yeah. Um, it was it was a it was a really interesting day, and you know I, I we did that. Yep. And I kind of you know put it into our stuff, and we started talking about it. And, mm -hmm. and then we were at a conference, and <laughs> Todd started talking about how we'd come up with it. And I think the people at the conference said, "Wait, wait, wait, what?" <laughs> we never talked about where it came from. Yeah. So I said, "No, no, we we were sitting there bullying." That's how it happened. It's, yeah, it kind of reminds me of like those pub conversations when you hear about multi-millionaires. Like, yeah, I was sitting at a pub and I had this idea and yeah. that was how it came from. Um, the other one I was uh, mentioning was obviously there were a couple of quotes and they're really around rules that really kind of stuck out for me. Um, so safety or quality or good production is not the presence of more rules, which is something we tend to see in the health and safety space. Let's go and put a new rule in place because we think it's going to make people safer. And then the extension on that kind of quote that I liked was that more rules won't improve safety, productivity and quality, but good followable rules can enhance performance. And I think the word followable right. is key there. You know? So most people don't know that there's over 20 known procedure error drivers, mm -hmm. but they don't teach their procedure writers what they are. So by a followable rule, 
one of the you know, there, there's these five criteria you saw in the book: available, workable, yep. intelligible, correct, and consistently reinforced. But how do we write those in that way? Is is a talent that we're not giving writers. Mm -hmm. So I I'm not of the we don't need procedures at all. Our procedures make up the body of our knowledge yep. on what has hurt, maimed, and killed people in the past. Yep. We better not throw those away. What we need to do is write them with the workers so they're codified in a way mm -hmm. that they, within the Pareto principle, yep. meet 80, 90% of the needs of that task. Yep. And then the workers are vulnerable 10% of the time, not 90% of the time. Yeah. So, you know, the, they're, they're now looking for some kind of randomness that is random 10 to 20% instead of random 100%. I've got to see it coming from everywhere. Yep. And again, people can go out there and try to convince people in places that procedures aren't good till the cows come home. They're wrong. Yeah. And procedures aren't good because we haven't made procedures good. Yeah, correct. Right? So yeah. Procedures that suck are not good. Yeah. And in that way, more procedures doesn't equal more safety. Correct. And I agree with that piece. Yeah. But the right procedures that are followable. Yeah. Creates the conditions under which people can be safe because they're now learning all those lessons that we've learned over the over the generations. Yeah. No, I agree. I think um, the other thing that stood out for me, one of my, I think this is my new favorite acronym actually, um, is the acronym for OOPS. So, <laughs> for, so the outside of the procedure, program, process, parameter, or the situation. Yeah. Like, we, and, and it, I mean, the whole book is about error and identifying the modes that people are performing in to be able to then limit risk and, and I guess minimize harm to workers. And when you, you make a mistake or an error and you say, oops, for me, it's almost like, well, that's an identifying factor now that if you yeah. say, oops, then you're in that certain mode. Right. And it should be identifiable to people who perhaps read the book, but also kind of subscribe to that model that you can actually identify yeah. when someone's made so, an error. So we call those triggers. Mm -hmm. And what we want people to do is trigger off the vulnerability. So most organizations out there have a rule, for lack of a better way to say it, yeah. when you're not sure, you need to stop and get help. And then I asked senior leaders, um, I asked those guys on Friday, who gets to define unsure? And they look at me like a cow looking at me. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Their heads are tilting. <laughs> <laughs> well, the individuals, well, how good are we as humans at identifying our own vulnerabilities? Uh, not very good. In fact, we're actually wired to yep. try to justify the way we're thinking about something. So what OOPS does is provide a box if you discover that you are outside of the procedure, program, process, parameter, or situations you expect it to be, then you're in knowledge-based performance mode, your error rate yep. one and two it's to one really and high. And so the, the seasoned workers that hear that go, oh, okay, now I don't have to justify why I know. Yeah. I can say I'm stopping because I was oops and everybody gets it. Yeah. And the other thing that, that really helped is a lot of people put in stop work authority. Yes. <laughs> well, two, two of the four major personality types don't want to slow anybody. They don't want to, yep. they don't want to stop work. Yeah. Right. 
What we want to do is pause the task in order to get enough information to make sure that we were right or wrong. Mm -hmm. So when we instituted in healthcare in the U.S., it's pause task responsibility because they can't stop working on a, on a patient as an EMT, as, as an emergency medical technician. They can pause that task long enough to get the information oh, they need. Okay. But when, but stop work authority took two of the four major personality groups out of it. Yeah. As opposed to stop and seek out help. Yeah. Or pause the task. Yep. Right. And, and yep. so the words really really matter. Yeah. And, and no, oops true. just becomes one of the triggers to that identify. moves your ability to see the vulnerability up mm. so that you don't have to say oops after the fact. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I think the other thing that I, I noticed was there are definitely some cues and there's a couple of stories you talk about where um, people walk past workers that were like scratching their chin or yeah. scratching their head and that, you know, identifies that a worker is right. obviously in that knowledge-based performance error mode right. as well, which is it's interesting to see. I think it's the ability though, like we talked about earlier, that's psychologically safe and being able to approach someone when you see them, you know, scratching their head or doing that, or even using the words and identify that they're in that mode. But. So that's where a lot of organizations, I think, failed in their deployments, is they stopped before the worker. So they want everybody to be psychologically safe, but they didn't give the worker the tools to recognize yeah. when they were in knowledge-based <laughs> performance mode. Yeah. So why would they approach anybody if they haven't been given the tools to recognize their vulnerability? But if they do, if they're stand, if we're standing around in a group, and 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 he says, well, I think it should be this way, and you say, well, I'm pretty sure that we talked about that earlier, and said, well, I think it should be like this. We all look at each other and say, we're in knowledge-based yeah. mode. Why don't we just make sure we get exactly the right information first? The workforce will be the very first people to use that, but you have to give them that information. You got to trust them enough to give them the information to be the best final barrier they can be. Yeah. No, that was good. And I think following on from that, my last little question was around um, the surprising bit of knowledge that I picked up. You know, normally we say things in the industry and in various industries uh, need to be refreshed and training needs to happen, you know, every so often. Um, you mentioned though that uh, for more infrequent tasks, we tend to overestimate our memory recall capabilities. And you say, if you haven't done a task in the last three to six months, then you should treat it like it's the first time right. that you've ever done the task. Yeah. Practicality wise, you know, like you've worked on some plants and processing nuclear, et cetera. How does that impact production wise? If well, it keeps them from making a mistake that stops production. Okay. So it's not retraining. Yeah. It's the conversation and the pre-task preparation. Okay. Let's just go a little bit deeper into that conversation because we've got to reach back a little bit more. We may have to look at some documents of previous learnings. So it is a re it's a refresh basically. It, or, it, it, it's but a, it's conversational piece as opposed to let's put you through the whole induction program again absolutely. or let's train you up in yeah. the excavator operation. Now, for, some, for some things that have very high criticality yep. or very high risk, maybe it's, maybe it's the first time you've done a, a major potentially explosive condition, confined space entry, in the last year in your organization, maybe we're sitting down and having some refresher right before that. Yeah. But in general, the overwhelming majority of these are, um, let's have a conversation about what all of us collectively know about this, and let's try to discover what we don't know or don't remember so we can fill those gaps before we start.
-hmm. That's that whole start when start when safe, right? That's that all came from um, not refresher training, but a conversation pre-task. Yeah. That makes sure people are ready to go. Yeah. Before we before we start the work. Hmm. I think I would advocate for that definitely. Uh, fair enough. So uh, I guess the last part normally uh, in the podcast is I allow a special guest to kind of talk on a topic that they're passionate about. Obviously, you've published a book. Um, do you want to share any insights perhaps on the performance error modes or anything else that, you know, is top of mind at the moment for you with our listeners to close off yeah. this lovely little episode? Well, I, I mean, I wrote the book because I was asked to write it because performance modes, performance error modes were being so poorly taught. They were being cut out of traditional hog. Okay. And and that took away the people's ability to discover their own vulnerabilities and do something about it. Mm -hmm. So I was asked to stop writing the book I was writing and write this one. Um, and Todd was the one that actually asked me to do that. Okay. So, but, but understanding if the workforce and the managers and the supervisors, the frontline leaders understand performance error modes, the whole world opens up to them in being able to manage the work better. Mm -hmm. The work as done can be better performed by us seeing the signals, the triggers early enough to do something about it instead of identifying the problems after the fact. So I, I wrote the book because people said, hey, you need to write a book. <laughs> but this, we put everything about this in our fit online. Yeah. And so you can go, go and watch a two to five minute video for free on any of the topics of human organizational performance. Mm -hmm. So we've now discovered that, you know, a whole, whole organization full of people will join Fit Online in, in a <laughs> three or four day period. Well, we've never really heard of these folks. Who are they? <laughs> yeah. And, and so what we'll find out is that they've told their frontline leaders that their Monday morning safety talk they can call up a raw observation to say, well, let's do the raw observation on why we can't get people to stop. And we'll watch, they'll watch the raw observation on their phone and they'll have a crude discussion about that and boom, boom, their safety talk is, is based on something from outside. The supervisors aren't having to invent it. Yeah. These, these are, were all unintended consequences of developing mm -hmm. Fit Online. We've got probably 250 pieces of free content out there. So if people want to get started, there's a there's a speech that they want people to see or a webinar that they want people to watch or parts of talks or mm -hmm. the, the observations um, uh, or any of the web um, podcasts yep. Yep. that are out there. Those are all available and, and it's kind of in one place that you get to pick and choose, mm -hmm. but it all meets the hop criteria that we've tested and tried and worked in 350 organizations. So they're wow. getting information that they know will work. Yep. It's amazing like reasons. It or not doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yep. And that they can even go in and order full courses. We have um, effective written guidance. Mm -hmm. So those top five error drivers, mm -hmm. there's an effective written guidance course online. So most people don't write procedures for a living. But there's also one for reviewers, approvers, and subject matter experts. So the people that review procedures should know what they're looking for. Yeah. So we've tried to create um, the ability for anybody to go on and learn 
regardless of whether they use us. And I, so that was kind of back to your That's perfect. Infinite. <laughs> yeah, it's also really at the heart of it is that collaboration model and what we were talking about earlier where you can't trademark, you know, so there are certain things that you can't nor should you trademark. Yeah. And you know, the ability to learn and make the world a better place is about doing that. So Well and, and don't get me wrong, we have copyrighted a lot of the stuff and then and then we'll see it off somewhere. <laughs> and they'll say, Well that was public domain. I said, Yes, it was public domain because someone stole it from us. So, <laughs> so the methods yeah. know, that work yeah. should be copyrightable. Yeah. Because if, if something um, and Adrian as well when you change your mindset. Sometimes you don't necessarily need new tools. Sometimes you can revisit tools that you've previously used as well that have been implemented, but because the mindset wasn't in the right, you know, area, um, it's now going to be effective. And I know I've, you know, been on sites before where they definitely did that. They went, oh, in instant investigations, let's bring in a whole new methodology that was a very, very different way of thinking, as in an engineering way of looking things, as opposed to, say, the old school ICAM view. Um, and the unfortunate side was it gave you the tool, it gave you, you know, things you need to tick off, but it didn't change the mindset. So if you're dealing with safety professionals, you're dealing with frontline supervisors who don't have that engineering mindset or that don't have the mechanical kind of, you know, gauges and what happens when this happens and that kind of thing. It's just another exercise of completing the bits of paper, ticking the boxes, answering the questions, and you really haven't determined what happened and what you've learned from what happened realistically. You've just done an exercise in filling out a bit of paper, which is pointless in this day and age. Mm. Yeah, so, so I, I think you're right. And so if you change the mindset, you, you potentially keep some of the tools. But I think some tools that people have, an organization have used are so weaponized and yeah, so associated with negative outcomes and negative learning for workers. Yeah. The, the, you just need oh, to put yeah. it out of its misery and ditch it. <laughs> Oh, 100%, you know, yeah, definitely. And, I, and I'm not sure if you've heard other podcasts, but I've taken my name off numerous incident reports before where we've gone down that line of an old school methodology, for example, and it ended up being, you know, operator error, um, as opposed to actually looking at decision-making processes, systems and things that were unsafe in the first instance. And it's like, well, you've used a methodology, congratulations, you came to this outcome. However, the outcome is, what I feel not appropriate, and you haven't actually examined the things that led to that, including those mindset changes, including turning it around on the organization and identifying it. So I've definitely, definitely had a few where I'm like, please take my name off that. If that goes to the regulator with my name associated with it, I would not be proud to say it's my work, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Not good, but I'm looking forward to spending time with uh, Southpac in my hot course and learning the fundamentals and and the networking and all the fun stuff that goes along with it. And I appreciate the time that both of you have taken out of your day to meet with me um, and give me those really great um, insights for our listeners as well. So thanks very much to both of you for doing that. No worries. Thanks, Jodine. Awesome. Thanks. How fantastic were those answers to my questions? How do you feel about the concept of host leadership? And what about those inventions? got to love the scary music that will autoplay when something bad is about to happen. So that brings us to the close of another episode, but I can tell you that our next Health Safety and Environment Collective event has been locked and loaded for the 17th of March. Yes, St. Patrick's Day, from 5 till 7pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. There are some brilliant presenters lined up, plus a very exciting panel discussion on the challenges with 
current methods of incident investigations. And as always, an excellent networking opportunity. The event is free. You can attend virtually or in person. And remember that the aim of HSEC is to bring together professionals from any industry, in any position, at any level within an organisation, to share insights, knowledge, experiences and innovations relating to HSE with the aim of contributing to keeping workers safe. The event is live and you can register by going to hsec.au, that's hsec.au and clicking the link. Until next time, stay safe.